All right, well, we are continuing in the book of Exodus this morning, and we're, uh, we are moving towards the conclusion. Exodus is 40 chapters, so um, we'll be looking to finish perhaps before Christmas, but it might be the, the beginning of the new year. We'll see. So um, no promises right now. So we are planning, trying to plan another joint service with Mount Ararat in December, so, and then we got Christmas, so uh, we'll, we'll make it work. But it's been a good journey, and uh, again, continuing it this morning. Uh, let's pray together for God's help in this. Our Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we need your help this morning. And there are some passages that are harder for us, feel more distant. And this, in some ways, is one of them. So we ask that you would help us to understand us to see you, your, your heart, your will, your plan, and help us to see how it points to our lives and changes our world today. Thank you that you love to work through your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, anytime you join a new team or a new company, uh, you instinctively start learning. When you, when you go into that new realm, you immediately are, 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 kind of have this learning radar on. Like you want to figure out how does this team work? What, what are the kind of values of this company? Um, how do the different processes work? Um, what, who holds what position? And, and what are the best practices in this company? You, you immediately kind of put on this learning cap of, how does this work? How, how do I function within this new setting, this new situation that I'm in? In some sense, that's what we're looking at here. The people of Israel are in, in really a relatively new nation at this point. They've been brought out of Egypt and out of slavery to be God's people, and they've been invited to approach him. Remember, that's the point of the tabernacle, is that, that he would dwell in their midst and that they would draw near and approach him. And, and so they're this new people and they're in this place where they need to figure out how do they do that? What, what does it look like to approach God? Where, where, where do we go and who serves in what role? And, and, and they're, they're, they're learning all of this. And we've been seeing that through the, the preceding chapters here and we're going to continue to see it today. How do you approach God? What does that look like? And how do you relate to Him? And what role do, do you play and I play and, and the priests and, and, and so forth and, and the different pieces of furniture? And we're trying to learn about approaching God. There's a lot for them to learn. And, and yet, at the same time, there's also a lot for us to learn. Right? This whole idea of approaching God is what we want to do. We, we want to approach God. We want to draw near to Him. Like, that's what we were made for, is to live in relationship with God. That was the Garden of Eden, and that's what, what we were, are needful of now, is to approach, draw near to the living God. And so we want to learn from this section, chapters 30 and 31, we want to learn about approaching God, what it means to approach Him and what lessons there are for us here. As we do that, let's step back and think about where we're at in the book of Exodus, right? So just the big picture again. Remember what's happened so far. Yahweh, the living God, has brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. 
to be his people, to live in covenant relationship with him, to live according to his law, to draw near to him. And part of this involved the construction of the tabernacle, this tent where God would dwell in the midst of his people, where he would meet with his people. So we saw, just beginning back in chapter 25, this kind of construction instructions and, and how, to, how to build the various furniture and, and the tent itself and so forth, right? And we looked at that, and then we, we looked last week at the idea of the priestly clothing and the priestly ordination and so forth, right? And this week, we kind of return back to some of the furniture and different dynamics regarding the tabernacle and how, again, to approach God. Now, in some ways, you look at these chapters, chapters 30 and 31, and there's some parts of it that are hard to connect all together, okay? Um, and, and, and honestly, it's, it's, it was somewhat challenging preparing because of that, and you're trying to think, how, how do these different sections within chapters 30 and 31 all fit together as one, right? And I think the unifying theme that we're going to look at is this idea they all have to do with approaching God, with being God's people who approach Him. And so we're going to look at different ways, that different lessons, if you will, within these two chapters of what it means to be God's people approaching Him and coming into His presence. We're going to look at six observations about what it means to be a people who approach the living God in worship. So number one, approaching God as a prayerful people. In chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, we get the instructions for the building of the altar of incense. Now, this is different than the original altar that we saw a few weeks back that was out in the temple courtyard. This instead is an altar of incense. It's really a mini altar. It's about a foot and a half wide by a foot and a half long. It's, it's a square altar. So it's, it's rather small. Remember, the, the other one was was several feet wide by several feet wide. This one's small. It's a foot and a half wide by a foot and a half, and it's about three feet high. So it's this kind of mini altar, and this altar would actually go inside the tent. Um, if you remember, the tent, the tabernacle had these two rooms. The, the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant was, was the most holy place. That's where God's presence was kind of made manifest and made known. Um, and in that room uh, was separated by a, a, a thick veil uh, it would keep people out because it was a dangerous place where sinful people could not go safely, right? And so outside the veil, you had the, the lampstand and the table of, of, for the bread of the presence, right? And then you also had what we see here, this, this altar for incense. So this altar of incense was not for burnt offerings or animal offerings or food offerings. It was for incense. Incense was this fragrant plant material of various sorts that would burn and release a sweet-smelling smoke. That's the idea here. So on this little altar, they would, they would burn incense. We, we have incense in some of our houses, or now we have, what do we have, like essential oil diffusers or something? It's kind of the same idea, right? But the priests would burn this incense, and according to what we read here, they'd burn it in the morning, and they'd burn it, burn it again in the evening. Now, here's the question. What's the significance of this incense? It's not spelled out here in this text. There's a couple of possibilities, and maybe both are, are true to some extent. In Leviticus 16, you could go over there and read it, but 
Essentially, it describes, there's a, a, a little section where it seems to describe the smoke from the altar of incense as being kind of a second veil almost to protect the priests from the danger that they were in from being in the presence of the glory of God, right? So there was the veil of the, the big linen veil curtain, right? Um, but this was almost a second veil that obscured God's presence so they would, wouldn't be in danger as sinful men, right? So Leviticus 16, there's this interesting note along those lines. More prominent, though, throughout Scripture is the idea that the incense is connected with prayer. We've seen already that, that the tabernacle is full of symbolic elements, right? Um, symbolic objects and actions, and here even symbolic smells. It's interesting. It's a whole, whole sensory experience of symbols. And that's what we see here. The picture of incense is of prayers, as the smoke goes, the idea is of the prayers ascending to Yahweh, of going up to Him and being pleasing to Him. You think of the pleasing aroma, right? Listen to Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then in Revelation chapter 8, these are just a couple of passages. There are several more throughout Scripture, but Revelation 8, verse 3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Revelation is obviously another place that has highly symbolic language. What's the symbol? It's the symbol is of, of the prayers going up, of being heard by God. So here's what's happening. Morning and evening, the priest would go in, burn this incense, the smoke from the incense would rise, and it was a symbol of what was going on. It was a symbol of God's people's, the prayers of God's people going up to God. Of prayers that are sweet and pleasing to Him. Now, Christian, this picture wasn't just for the Israelites, it's for us. And here's what's in incredible here, is that we have a better priest who is bringing our prayers into the presence of the Father. Because of Jesus, because of His perfection, because of His blood, our prayers are heard. Our prayers are sweet and pleasing to the Father. He delights in them. Christian, stop there for a minute. When you take time to talk to the God of the universe in prayer, do you believe this? Is this real to you? That just as real as that smoke would be from the incense rising into the air, you believe your prayers are that real, that they are going up, they are reaching God's presence. He is hearing them. And do you believe that because of Jesus, they're accepted? He hears them. And do you believe that because of Jesus, He actually is pleased by them? They are sweet aroma. God is not tired by you praying. He is not put out because, oh, here, here Tim is again. You know, I, I have to hear his babbling. Or, you know, no, He 
It's sweet to Him that we come to Him in prayer. Even when our prayers are weak, confused, maybe we're crying out, they, they are sweet to Him because they come through our high priest. They are pleasing aroma to Him. So this week, as you pray, get this picture in your mind. Maybe tomorrow morning when you get up and you spend time in God's Word and you're listening to Him and then you, then you take that and you move to prayer and imagine again your prayers being the sweet-smelling aroma that God hears and He accepts and He delights in. That's number one. Approaching God as His prayerful people, as a prayerful people. Number two, approaching God as a ransomed people. Chapter 30, verses 11 and following, the text turns and addresses this census tax. The idea of a census, obviously, is to count the people. And so the idea is that when the people of Israel were counted, for each person that was counted, a tax needed to be paid. Now, uh, this isn't just a way to get taxes. Um, and and it's, it's interesting because it could seem just very disconnected from everything else here. There was a point to all of this, and we're going to look at that here. The first and most direct way that this census tax was connected to the tabernacle and all of this, we see in verse 16. If you look at verse 16, look at it with me. It says, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So on the one hand, you see in that verse, the first thing you just see is this tax was to be used to pay for the tabernacle services or just upkeep, right? Paying for this incense that we just talked about or for the anointing oil that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. So this census tax had a purpose in upkeeping the temple, the tabernacle, and its services. The second way that we see a connection here is, that, is in what the census tax communicates. It communicates that the people who draw near or approach God are His. He owns them in a sense. They're His people. Look at verses 12 and 13, chapter 30, verse 12. It says, When you take the census of, my, of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Now, this is a, a bit foreign to us, like the idea of, of, of giving a ransom of some sort. Um, we're, we're not, you know, particularly familiar with. Um, but, but there's something here in, in the point of when we count something, or when you take a census, in this case, you're in a sense claiming ownership of that thing. And that's the point here. Listen to what Philip Ryken says. He says, who has the right to take inventory? Only the person who owns whatever is being counted. We only have the authority to count things that are rightfully ours. We can't put numbers on other people's stuff. 
So who had the right to number the Israelites? Only God. They were his people. So he alone had the authority to count them. So here's the point. When the Israelites or their rulers went to count the people, they were in serious danger of claiming ownership of the people. And this census tax was a way for them to say, no, we don't own the people. We don't own ourselves. These are God's people. And so they deserve, he deserves them to be his. They owe him his, their lives, right? They weren't their own. In fact, they, they, to, to be very specific, they, they owed God their lives in part because of their sin against him. The consequences, the wages of sin is death. They deserve to die because of their sin, or as, as it references in here, they deserve to experience the plagues, the kind of plagues that Egypt experienced during the Exodus, right? That's what they deserved. They were owned by God and deserving His destruction and His judgment because of their sin. And this ransom tax was a reminder of that. It was a reminder we're not our own. It's a reminder we need to be saved from that judgment, from being designated to be God's and to be judged by Him. We need to be saved and redeemed or ransomed from that. So think about that connection with the tabernacle now. The tax was a reminder that if they were going to approach him in worship, they had to be ransomed back from being God's people that would be judged. To be ransomed from being judged to being ransomed to being worshipers. If they were going to approach him. This idea of a ransom is yet another shadow pointing to Christ, is it not? Remember Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Christian, listen. You deserved all of the curses and plagues of God's judgment. But you were ransomed. You were bought back by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you now belong to Him. You now belong to Him not to be judged. You belong to Him to worship Him. This has huge implications. You know, it's interesting. We live in a society where we think we're our own. We're a very independent society, and we're, we think we can kind of create our, our own selves, and, and we can customize ourselves, and we do this through plastic surgery or through deciding what gender we feel like we are. There's different ways in which we feel like we can change who we are, and we get to form who we are, and we customize our image on social media, and we, we, can, we can be anything we want to be in our society as long as we just get the right education or go down the right path or Whatever, we, we think we can kind of be our own. And, and, and this says, no, hold on. 
your gods. You, if you are a Christian, you have been re- ransomed by him and by Christ, and now you're his. And that means a couple of things. For one, that gives us a sense of security. You're not your own to do whatever and try to have to figure it out, right? Because there's a pressure on us in our society. If we form ourselves, you better do a good job forming yourself. You better do a good job making yourself into something. And if you fail, then you're in trouble. Or if you're confused or you change your mind, what do you do? And there's all this pressure. If we are owned by ourselves and have to form ourselves into who we're going to be, there's so much pressure to do it right. And this, for us as Christians, takes the pressure off and says, no, you're God's. You're His. You're His. You don't have to make yourself into something. You're His people, and He's doing a work in you. He has a plan for you. He has formed you, and He is going to keep changing you and directing your life. The pressure's not all on you. You're His. So on the one side, it gives us a sense of security and comfort. On the other side, it does challenge us, doesn't it? To say you're not your own to just do whatever you want with yourself or your body or your mind or your heart. You're not your own. You're God's. You, you look to what he has called you to. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6 says. This is speaking particularly of our bodies, which is interesting. In our, our society, our bodies seem to be the thing that we think we can have the most control of and do whatever we want and it doesn't matter with. But, but 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body, with your mind, with your heart and desires, with your will, with all of yourself. Glorify God. So number one, approaching God as a prayerful people. Number two, approaching God as a ransom people. Number three, approaching God as a purified people. In chapter 30, verse 17 and following, we have a yet another piece of the tabernacle furniture. This time it is a wash basin. It's a bronze wash basin that would hold water. It would be out in the tabernacle courtyard. Uh, If I remember right, it's between the altar for burnt offerings and the actual tabernacle tent, and there would be this bronze wash basin. It was specifically for the priests to wash their hands and their feet before they either entered the tabernacle or before they performed the sacrifices. Now, obviously, Washing our hands is good. Just ask any kindergarten teacher, wash your hands all the time, and you get sick less, right? It's good hygiene. But this is about more than that, right? Not surprisingly, again, there are symbols everywhere here. There's communication everywhere here, not just in words, but in word pictures, in objects. And the point here is a reminder of the necessity for absolute purity in the presence of the holy God. There cannot be sin in his presence. The dirt and stain of sin cannot be tolerated by the perfectly white, hot, holy God. Look at chapter 30, verse 20 and 21. 
speaking of the priests, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offerings to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. And in verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. Wow. So if they don't wash their hands, they're going to die. Now, that, that, that's pretty severe. What's the point, though? Why such a big deal? Because God is that holy. Sin is that evil. And God's justice and righteousness is that pure. You cannot enter the presence of the living and holy God if you have the stain and the dirt of sin on your hands. I think this is a little shocking to us because we just don't see how holy God is or how serious sin is. But the point is clear here. If you're going to approach God, you must be pure. Again, remember what we're talking about here. We want to approach God. So what's the lesson for us? If we want to approach God, we must be pure. Now, now, that has implications for us pursuing purity on a daily basis in the way we live and the way we think and so forth. But the, the first and primary application that it has is I need somebody to wash me. I need some kind of water that will get my heart and my soul clean, right? Because it never was about the hands and the feet, actually, the physical. It was ultimately about the heart needing to be clean. Where do we go for that? We go to Jesus Christ and his finished work. This is part of what's symbolized in baptism, right? This, this idea that the Spirit in saving us washes us clean, as Titus speaks of. He washes away our sins through Christ and his blood. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and such were some of you, talking about all the dirt and stain of all sorts of sins in verse 10 there in 1 Corinthians. But he, what does he say? But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what we need. Friend, if you have never been cleansed, your hands, your feet, your heart, your mouth are caked with years and years of dirt, stains from your sin. And you cannot come into the present. You cannot approach God not the, not the God of the Bible, not the real and living God. You can't come near to him with those stains, with that dirt, with that filthiness all over you from all of your sin. You must be washed clean. And you can't wash yourself clean with any amount of soap on this earth, with any amount of make it up and try to do better good works, with any amount of religious ceremony or activity you can't get yourself clean you're just going to be scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and it will never come off by any other means than the blood of jesus christ come to him come to him to get clean he will cleanse you perfectly completely through his blood so that you can approach god and live and live fully live and enjoy his presence. If that's you, come talk to one of us. Come 
talk to somebody around you, but reach out. We'd love to pray with you and for you. We can be cleansed. And Christian, if you have been cleansed, stand in that confidence that you have been cleansed. And keep drawing on that confidence. You know, there's a principle here of the ultimate cleansing, but then there's this theme also we see, especially in parts of the New Testament where there's an ongoing cleansing. Look at Jesus when he washes his disciples' feet. He says, no, you're clean, but you need your feet washed. Like, there's an ongoing cleansing need. Or, or think of 1 John where it says, you know, if we, he's talking to believers. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We keep going back to him for cleansing. Day by day, God, wash me clean through the blood of Christ. And I want to, through that, now approach you as one who's been cleansed. So we approach God as a purified, cleansed people. Fourthly, we approach God as a holy people. This is similar. Cleansing has to do with maybe a a separation from sin. Uh, Approaching God as a holy people, we're talking now more about approaching God as a people set apart for God. So from sin, cleansed away from sin, set apart for God. In chapter 30, verse 23 to 33, we see uh, instructions about anointing oil, okay? We talked about anointing oil, I think, a couple weeks ago, but it's this idea of, a, of an oil that would be poured out on somebody's head or sometimes on an object, as is described in this passage, and, and you pour this oil out, and it signifies something. And the, at the core of it, it signifies that this person or object is set apart for God, for the Lord, right? It's communicating that this person or object was set apart for a special role or use. And so you get this picture of of these objects and these people anointed to be devoted to, set apart for the Lord's use and His worship. Look at chapter 30, verse 26. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Starting in verse 26, with it, that is the anointing oil, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall become holy." You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. See all this language, this idea of holiness or consecration? Consecration, again, means that idea you sh- they will be set apart, right? As holy, something separate or someone separate. Now, here's the point I want us to see. Here it is the priests and the objects in the tabernacle that are set apart as holy, to be something separate for God, His people, His worship, right? But this gets expanded, particularly in the New Covenant. We are called, in 1 Peter, a holy nation. Or consider this passage from Zechariah. You can read it on the screen with me. Zechariah is looking to the future, and he says this. He says, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord will be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil meat of a sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of the hosts on that day. What, what's Zechariah saying there? Part of what he seems to be saying is that in the future, everything will be holy. Everything will be set apart for the Lord and the Lord alone. Everything will be devoted to him. Everything will be directed towards his worship. Now the ultimate fulfillment of that, I think, is still future. Where one day in the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be devoted to the Lord. Every object, every activity, every heart will be fully dedicated to the Lord and to his worship. But we as Christians get to be a microcosm or preview of this now. We have been ransomed, remember? Bought. We've been purified and we have been anointed so that our whole lives, our whole selves would be wholly set apart for the Lord. Not just one little part of us, of the spiritual part of me, not just one little part of our lives, oh, the church part of my life. My, our whole selves and our whole lives are to be anointed, set apart for the Lord, for His worship, for His glory. Every day, through the Spirit, we have a chance to live this out. That every part of our lives would say, holy to the Lord. Every part of our being, ourselves, would be holy to the Lord, set apart for Him. Approaching God as a holy people. That's what we want to do. Number five now. Approaching God as a gifted people. In chapter 31, we turn from the things that need to be made to the people that are going to be making it. We turn to the craftsmen. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamech of the tribe of Dan, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So we haven't really dealt with this yet, but there's this question. God tells them to make all this stuff, and the question is, well, who's going to make it, right? Well, here we find out who, right? Now, it's interesting. These men, you know, as I imagine this, I imagine they had, like, natural ability given by God. Like, they were just craftsmen. But here there's something extra, right? Like God gives them a, he's going to give them a supernatural ability, a spirit-empowered ability, right? He's going to fill them with the Spirit of God to do this work. This highlights again, on the one hand, just the importance of this tabernacle, of how much value God put on this idea that he was going to dwell with this people and they were going to approach him. This is what he wanted. He wants his people to draw near to him in communion with him. There's a couple other lessons to be learned here. One is, and this is a secondary lesson, but it's interesting, I think, and, and that is that this highlights how God values art and beauty, right? He wanted this to be 
done well. He wanted it to be done with excellence and beauty. The task and skills they were to perform express various kinds of art. And we're reminded here that art is not a secular endeavor. It's given by God. It's valued by God. And if we are empowered by His Spirit and doing it for His glory and doing it according to what He's called us to, there is a there's an opportunity to see art as something that is beautiful, that is from Him, that we can give thanks for to Him, that can be all about Him. There's more that could be said about that. A second lesson here is to be found in just the Spirit's supernatural empowerment. It's interesting that the words that we see here where it says he's gonna, God says He's going to fill him with the Spirit to do this work, we see that several other times in the Old Testament, but it's not real common. We see it with certain kings and prophets, right, where they're filled with the Spirit to do this certain work, to prophesy at this time, or, or filled with the Spirit to, to, to rule as king in this time. But it's not common. But once again, we see something very, very different, and we see something where it expands dramatically in the New Covenant where the Spirit gives gifts to every Christian for the building of a greater temple, the church. Think about that. These original craftsmen were giving, given Spirit-empowered gifts to build the tabernacle, this temple, this tent temple, right? Every one of us is given gifts by the Spirit now to build a greater temple the church itself, where the presence of God dwells. Think about what that means. That means you have gifts given by the Spirit of God to help build, strengthen, help the church flourish, to help the other people in the church grow into Christ-likeness so that God's glory would be displayed in His people. That, that's what we see where we see this fulfilled. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. Not to some. To each is given the manifestation, the showing, the dis the expression of the Spirit's work in and through them for what? For the common good, so that all would be built up. Isn't this amazing? Not only are we invited to draw near and approach God, we are invited and gifted to be a part of building His dwelling place, the church. What a privilege, huh? Let's lean into that. Let's ask, what are my giftings? Where can I serve and just experiment and find out where I might be gifted? How can I seek equipping? How can I pray for the Spirit to empower me? How can I just build up someone else today through the person God's made me and through the Spirit-empowered gifts He's given me? How can I build up this church, this temple today? All right, number six now, approaching God as His covenant people. At the end of chapter 31, we return to the Sabbath 
We've covered the Sabbath before, a couple times here in the book of Exodus. But the text returns there. Look at chapter 31, verse 14. It says, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does, not, does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. The question is, why is this so important, and why is it brought up again and emphasized the way it is? I think the answer is in the next couple of verses there in chapter 31. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, we talked about this some back in Exodus 20 with the Sabbath command, but what we see here, it seems, is that the Sabbath, this day set apart for rest, and worship, the Sabbath was a sign or the symbol of the, the, the Mosaic covenant, of this old covenant. It was a sign that you were part of it. So if you, celebrate, if, you, if, you, if you said, I'm a part of this covenant, I'm a part of this people of God in relationship with Him under the Mosaic covenant, but you don't celebrate the Sabbath, you're contradicting yourself. And therefore, you're put out of that covenant in the old covenant, that meant death. You're put out of that covenant because you're refusing to acknowledge it in the sign that God had given. He'd given this sign of the Sabbath to say, I'm a part of this covenant and this covenant people. They needed this reminder that they are His. To remember that they live in relationship with Him. To remember that they're in a covenant relationship with Him. If the Israelites were going to approach God, they needed this. It was hugely important that they remember who God was as their creator and their redeemer, and they remember who they were as his covenant people. If they were going to approach him, they had to maintain their identity as his covenant and beloved people. Now, this is true for us as well. As we approach God, Draw near to Him, it is vital to remember these truths. Who God is as our Savior and our Creator. Who we are as His beloved children and covenant people. And what it means to live in relationship with Him. Only again there is a difference. So there's similarity here. We need to remember this too. We need to come back to the sign of the covenant too. But for us there are differences. We are not under the old covenant. We are under the new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. And the sign of this new and better covenant is not the Sabbath. The sign of this new and better covenant is the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup that remind us of the basis for this covenant. That remind us that we're in this covenant because of grace. Because He died in our place and for our sins. It's through Him. Through Jesus' death that we have been brought into this covenant relationship with the living God. So we too need to approach God as a covenant people, but not under the old covenant. We approach God as 
those who are under the new covenant. We approach God as a covenant people. And the sign to identify ourselves with that, the sign to remind ourselves of that, is the Lord's Supper. Because of this, we look at the bread and the cup, and we remember who God is, our Savior, our Creator. We look at the bread and the cup, and we remember He redeemed and ransomed us. He purified and cleansed us. We remember that He set us apart to be His. Because of this, when we approach Him, we can know we will not be turned away. Because of this, we can know we will be welcome. Because of this, we can know we can approach God as His people right now. How good is that? He gives us this covenant symbol to remember because we need to remember that. We can approach Him freely, boldly, securely. How good is that? This is a reminder to taste and see that the Lord is good. He has made a covenant with us in the blood of Christ so that we can draw near and approach Him. If you're not a Christian yet, and this isn't for you yet, you're not a part of this covenant yet, but you can be. The door is wide open if you will come to Christ, if you will trust Him to take your sins and wash you clean. You can be a part of this covenant. You can know His love and the security of His grace. We urge you to take this time to think about that. If you are a Christian, you'd say you're a Christian, but you're refusing to obey Jesus in some way, then we encourage you to wait. The Bible tells us not to take this in an unworthy manner. To, to say that I'm a part of His covenant people and I've been washed clean and set apart for Him and then live a completely different way doesn't fit. It's a dangerous place to be in. We'd encourage you to repent, turn back. But if you're trusting in Jesus alone as your only hope, and you're following him with his people, we invite you to join us as we come back to the sign of the covenant. With the bread as you take the elements, we are looking to the body of Jesus. It's a symbol of his body that bore our sins so that we could approach him boldly, joyously, freely. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, 26, in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Take and eat. As we take the cup, we are taking in a symbol of Jesus' blood, the blood of the covenant, the blood that ransoms us to be God's people, the blood 
that cleanses us fully so that we can approach our God. Matthew 26 goes on and says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Our Father, we give thanks for a new and better covenant, a new and better high priest, for the wonder of being gifted and given a part in what you're doing, for the wonder of being set apart to be yours for the wonder of being cleansed fully and completely for the wonder of being ransomed so that we are your people and for the wonder of getting to approach you in prayer all of this is ours in christ it's on him alone we rest everything Thank you for all that we have in him. May we go rejoicing. May we go living in the light of these realities. In Jesus' name, amen.